Tillin, a Welsh word for Celtic carp. Welcome back to Tillin Tales. This podcast combines science and culture, all with a harp background. So I play the harp, but more importantly, I am a shop, which is another Old English term that describes somebody who recites poetry and plays an instrument while they're doing it. So, while I'm not necessarily reciting poetry, I am probably going to be talking about folklore or science or the combination of the two. Uh, Today's topic will be about kind of spirituality and religion, but yeah, I really want to thank all my listeners so far and give a special shout out to whoever is in Belgium listening to me. One of my favorite things about this podcast is that I get to see the locations of where people are listening from, and somebody is in Belgium listening to this podcast right now. So if you think that it is interesting to hear my 24-year-old Midwestern girl perspective on the world and ideas, I am just honored to bring that to you. And maybe you're just making fun of me the whole time, but... Honestly, either way, I think it's cool that you're out there. Um, If you would like to, and this goes for all of my listeners, please send me stories or takes or ideas that you think of when you listen to my episodes to my email. And that's at T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S at gmail.com. So to lintails at gmail.com. If you send me a little message there, I will be sure to reply to you and definitely share it if it's shareworthy and I have your permission. So thank you very much for listening. Most of my listeners are in Milwaukee and um, Illinois. (coughs) Oh, I have a cold. Um, It's not COVID, but I have a cold. And I wanted to give an acknowledgement today or yesterday when this podcast is out. Yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day, so not Columbus Day. We're not doing that anymore. It's 2023. It was Indigenous Peoples Day, which in the United States is the day where we acknowledge the land is home to many Indigenous tribes and Native Americans. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from the Encyclopedia of Milwaukee about who you know, has resided and continues to reside in the Milwaukee area. Um, And here it goes. So, the indigenous peoples of North America have always claimed Milwaukee as their own. Known as the gathering place by the waters, or good earth, or good land, or simply gathering place, indigenous groups such as the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, Ottawa, Fox, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sauk, and Oneida have all called Milwaukee their home, and at some point, at some point in the last three centuries. This does not include many other native populations in Milwaukee today, ranging from Wisconsin groups like the Stockbridge Muncie and Brothertown Nation to outer Wisconsin peoples like the Lakota and Dakota, which are also known as the Sioux Nation. Um, First Nations, Creek, Chickasaw, Sac, Meskwaki, Miami, Kickapoo, Micmac, and Cherokee, among others. Uh, If I have mispronounced anything, I will have um, an indigenous.
speaker on soon. I'm so excited. I don't know. Native American? I'm going to figure out how to properly say these terms and when to say them because I think we're all still confused about that and uh, we should definitely clear this up. If the indigenous and Native American are interchangeable, which from my understanding they are, but I'm not sure. And that is exactly why we should take a day like Indigenous Peoples Day and figure that out, or at least have the intention to figure it out within the very near future. So that is your homework if you are listeners of Tillin Tales. Figure out where your land, or who has occupied your land in all of history, and um, how Native nations have treated the land and what they have taken from the land with gratitude um, because I think that's an important thing for us all to do is to learn those ways um, respectfully and with a great deal of purpose. So without further ado, um, I am going to open it up to my interview with Jessica Plotkin who is from Wisconsin. She's from Milwaukee and um, she talks a lot about her personal experience with Reformed Judaism, um, how she came to that, and also things like, how do you pray, and what is praying, and why is that relevant, Um, a lot of things like that in this interview, so enjoy. All right, welcome to To Lynn Tales Podcast, Jess. I have my colleague and friend, Jess Plotkin with me, and we are going to have a great chat about a whole bunch of things, I think, and we're, we're just going to have to let it, let it take its course. Hi, my name is Jess. I love stories of all kinds, so this podcast is a natural fit. I love science. I love the quote-unquote hard sciences of chemistry and biology, and I love the social sciences. I love the study of what it means to be human. I am interested in what it means to be a spiritual human. I'm a Jewish individual, and that is one of my main interests. I'm interested in Dungeons and Dragons, in cats, good music and good food and walks hiking in nature being outside reading any sort of good book I'm interested in cooking and just living my life you know yeah live love love yeah certainly (laughs) (laughs) no I I think that we have a lot in common um definitely with what it means to be human and the constant search for whatever that question is and how it intersects with our interests and our identities and our cultures. Tell me about your experience when you listened to the tree episode and what it made you think of. I'd love to. So I'll start just, I listened to the tree episode in the best possible setting. You know, sitting in the natural world, sitting on a beach, watching the waves, listening to the sounds, you know, what was coming in through the headphones as well. And it was a phenomenal moment to think about where I am in my own life 
and where I think so many of us are at this point. I know that going into the pandemic especially, a lot of us sort of had this moment where we felt like we were going into a cocoon. And that when we came out, we didn't know who we were going to be, what we were going to be, but we were going to be something else. I love that metaphor. I think the cocoon is a perfect way to describe it. And and you have no idea, you know, really what's happening either. Right. Like, You're a di- caterpillar making a cocoon for a caterpillar or caterpillars? Yeah. Call different things if they're going to turn into a moth or a butterfly. Are they all caterpillars? I think they're all caterpillars. So yeah, so a caterpillar, whether it's gonna turn, it doesn't know what it it's gonna know. turn into a moth or a butterfly, and and that's kind of it doesn't even know what it's doing. No, it's just evolving into goo and then reforming <laughs> into something completely different. And we're here. And then we're here. And so over the course of the pandemic, I as well as a lot of people in our generation, and really in in many generations we're forced to take time to stop and just be and that's something that a lot of us didn't have practice with we didn't know what to do with ourselves how are you supposed to fill hours on hours with only your own thoughts to keep you company only the natural world around you to give you entertainment when you know there was a period where nothing was filming nothing was being produced everything was in transition and so we all had to learn how to be with ourselves and so your podcast about trees about being in a natural environment and about giving yourself time to just be it was a phenomenal moment to reconnect with that feeling and to embrace it and make sure that i keep doing that it's something that I've needed to learn that truly I think everyone needs to learn oh my god even even me I'm on my walk the other day and my headphones died and I was like are you kidding me and I'm like (laughs) I just made a podcast on this I should be able to walk and take Mm -hmm. my walk without listening to anything and I love to listen to a podcast or if I have like a good like a good set of songs that I know is gonna like fit fit the theme of oh, the yeah. weather. I love matching my songs with the weather, but my headphones died, and so I needed to rely on the, the music of <laughs> the outdoors and um, just like understand how it all informs me. And so I just I just let that happen for the first time in a long time. And not a lot of us have taken many walks just mm-hmm. to take a walk. You know, we're not like walking our dog. We're just taking a walk with nothing in our ears Mm -hmm. no objective Mm -hmm. it's actually something i try to do for myself at least once a week to go for at least an hour-long walk without headphones with my phone set to a very minimalist setting where only my husband and my sister can get through to me and i just go I just, I go, I walk, I listen to the sounds of my community around me, and then eventually I end up in a natural setting where there are far fewer to no humans around me, and I just listen. It's something that I usually time to coincide with Shabbat, which is the weekly Jewish holiday of the Sabbath. It is the 25 hours from the beginning of sunset on Friday 
until three stars are visible in the night sky on Saturday night. And traditionally is a time to abstain from work. What that means has changed dramatically over the past couple millennia. What it means today for many people is very personal. So for me personally, I abstain from the work that I do throughout the rest of the week. I don't study, I don't make lesson plans, I try to keep house chores to a minimum, and for me it's mostly a chance to disconnect from all of the obligations of technology. I am loving the energy you have right now for this podcast because I get on here and I'm like, okay, I'm probably going to have to record this like five times because I'm not going to sound calm enough, but you're like, just the way you're sitting and sipping your coffee and talking about your personal spirituality is perfect. Thanks. So, it's taken practice. I, I can tell. No, I can tell. And it's not It's not like it's rehearsed, but it's something that's very comfortable and natural to you now. Yeah. Um, and, well, first, you brought up Shabbat, which I have a story that I need to ask you about. So I went to Trader Joe's the other day, and there's these girls that are probably like early high school or late middle school and they're standing and they're like handing things out and I'm just walking up to Trader Joe's and there's a lot of noises around me and you know cars and other things to pay attention to and my main goal is walking into the store but then this girl is in front of me all of a sudden and just says something to me and I and I'm just like oh hi and she's handing me something and I was like oh what this is for me and she's like, yes, are you Jewish? And I didn't hear what she said, but I was just like, thank you, this is for free, I can just have this? <laughs> she, was like, she was like, no, yeah, you can. And I was like, what are they? And she was like, they're candles. And I was like, okay, cool, awesome. And I kind of looked at them and I was like, oh, they're Jewish candles. <laughs> it was all so much at once. And she was like, yes, you know, they're Shabbat candles. And I was like, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I headed to the store, but it was like so much of a whirlwind. Like mm-hmm. I was in the middle of a tornado and this like young, young woman was handing me these beautiful like candles in a really nice looking box. And I was like, oh my God, it's so nice. And my boyfriend came up to me later and he was like, Sophia, she asked you if you were Jewish. And I was like, oh. Oh my god, I am not Jewish, but I feel kind of cool that she thought I was Jewish. Because <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how, why, but um, so now I have those candles and I need to know when to light them if I can. If oh, I certainly. I want to. Friday night, Friday, Friday night, night at sunset. Just light them at Friday night at sunset. Yeah, Do if I you want to. intention. Yeah. So the way that so the way that I do it, the way that my husband and I welcome in Shabbat is we set up our little candlesticks and before we light the candles, we do a sort of weekly review. We check in with each other and we like to share new or special experiences that we've had in the week. It just gives us a chance to check in with each other, check in with ourselves and give us a chance to acknowledge some of those moments that Sometimes it can feel like, you know, life is just passing by so quickly, you don't have time to just stop and recognize, hey, I saw a really cool butterfly this week. So we just, 
we build it into our schedule. It's something that we do every week. And sometimes it's, you know, really big things like, oh, I took my first medical college admissions test, hopefully my only medical college admissions test. Sometimes it's, it's smaller things. Sometimes it's, I saw the first, you know, autumn leaves of the season. I had my first pumpkin spice drink, muffin, whatever of the season. So sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small, but it's a chance for us to check in. And then we say a a Jewish blessing called the Shehechianu, which that word Shehechianu means who has kept us alive or who has sustained us, who has enabled us to survive. And it's a, a blessing that thanks God for keeping us alive, keeping us well and healthy so that we are able to experience whatever is going on. It's something that we say for the first time doing something ever or the first time doing something in a season. So for example, for holidays that are multi-day like Hanukkah, for the first night when you light the first candles of Hanukkah, you say the blessing for lighting the candles. And then you also say the Shekhyanu because it's the first time that you're lighting the Hanukkah candles for the season. And it's also a prayer that observant Jews will say whenever anything new happens. So whether that's putting on a new blouse for the first time, whether that's tasting a new food for the first time, or having a fruit for the first time in a year. So we built it into our weekly. That's crazy. I love, I love, like, with that is such, like, a universal feeling. Yeah. That um, is not like a word in the English language of, of like appreciating anytime you experience something new and it happens all the time when we're kids but you grow mm-hmm. up and that's that's exactly like you get your little hit of dopamine right on and what what really carries you through and kind of uplifts you throughout the day or like trying new little things I mean I get I get so much comfort from the same things but then trying on a new blouse when you said that I was like yes yeah I love trying on my new clothes for the first time yeah it's a reconnection with yourself it's a new discovery it's something exciting it's that first crunchy leaf of autumn and the first daffodil of spring it's it's a moment of wonder and awe so we take that time every week and then we light the candles and lighting the candles of Shabbat is actually a very interesting experience um, for most everything in Judaism if you're going to do something specifically to perform a mitzvah a commandment you will say the blessing for doing so and then you will do the thing lighting candles is very interesting because you actually light the candles first and then say the blessing okay. and the reason for that is because saying the blessing for it is what actually starts off the holy experience essentially so specifically for shabbat you are not permitted to work and that includes creating fire so in order to light the candles of shabbat you actually have to light them first and then say the blessing to start off shabbat and so now i'm thinking about about lighting fire and how that has like informed our entire 
like fire is why we're here as intelligent creatures. Oh, 100%. Create things and invent things and do work. And so fire is really like all the way back to the Greek classics, like just such a big human theme. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so cool that it's about working and how that means work. Yeah. So for you, if you want to light those candles, I absolutely welcome you and encourage you to do so, to set... Now I know how. You Now you know how. I can, I can teach you the actual words for it if you want to use the Hebrew words. Otherwise, you can just set a personal intention for yourself to take time, whether it's just the time that the candles are burning, that you abstain from work, that you take time for personal reflection, meditation, or if you want to set aside 25 hours to have a, a personal Shabbat. Oh my god. It, that feels illegal. It's not illegal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I... Wow, that's incredible. I think um, Judaism is so fascinating to me because I didn't know anybody Jewish growing up, honestly. I didn't know anybody until I came to Milwaukee and then a ton of people are Jewish here. And my noni, which is my grandma, she always made the joke that like she went to like catholic school like she had the nuns mm-hmm. but like her joke is that she's actually jewish she <laughs> being jewish and that's always just been like the only perception of of judaism in my mind is i know that judaism doesn't have jesus and that it's not all fluffed up in judaism it feels like there is a lot more grounding and a lot more reasons mm. why things are happening and for Christianity, people, you go to new new wave Christian churches, like a, a new non-denominal church, non-denominational church, right? And you walk in, and let's see, like the one I went to my freshman year, which I hated, I really prefer Catholic church because I love the traditions. I think they're so interesting. So when I went to like this non-denominational church, they have like the music which is like they try to make it look kind of like a club in there oh goodness on a sunday morning so they have like, like with lighting lights. oh yeah, wow i'm not even kidding they turn up the bass and it's like they're about to sing about jesus <laughs> and it's insane it is honestly ridiculous um and a lot of people like it whatever it makes people feel like young people feel like this is something i'm more comfortable with and, mm-hmm. and not so foreign to me but we're constantly looking for spirituality as young people because I think we're really detached from it now. And when I went to these new wave non-denominational Christian churches, the tradition's not there at all. They don't have something like, this is the specific way that you light your candles on whatever day or you know this is the specific ritual for doing so and the whole thing about non-denominationalism is that you know quote unquote like they only believe in the bible and so they don't have like the same like they don't have communion or any like specific traditions or rituals that like say the catholic church made up Mm -hmm. and the thing is when you lose those things you lose like these even if you don't know why we do them it feels like 
humans have been doing this for a long time. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. When you have a set formula, it gives you something to fall back on. There's... So in Jewish tradition, we have a set order of prayers. And from that set order of prayers, you know, when you have a set formula, that's when you actually have something from which you can deviate, from which you can personalize and make into something that works for yourself. If you're starting with, we believe in this one thing and you can approach it however you want some people will really flourish there they'll say great i have all this creativity all this open space i can make my own path and a lot of people will flounder because a lot of people most people really need structure and whether you take that structure and you keep it for your whole life and you use okay this is the formula that i use in order to get this outcome great or you can say you know what today i'm going to take formula a today i'm going to take formula b today i'm going to take formula t and just make my own pattern for what i need today so in judaism we have a set liturgy we have a set order of prayers we have each congregation will have a sidur, which is a prayer book. It comes from the Hebrew word seder, which means order. And it, it really is just a set order. It is something that you can always fall back on if you are feeling a spiritual need to connect and you do not have the words yourself. If you feel like you have an idea that you need to express and not the exact words, you can go in with the kavanah, which is a word that means intention, to communicate whatever that wordless feeling is that you're experiencing. And you can use the set words with that kavanah, with that intention, to communicate whatever you need to communicate with the divine presence, with God. So you use this just to pray. Yeah. Like, you're not even communicating to another human being. Like, you are intentionally setting up a way to express your feelings to the ether. Yeah. It can be some Jews pray to a divine presence that they feel in a more concrete fashion. Some Jews will have a somewhat anthropomorphic image of God. In the specific branch of Judaism that I practice, Reform Judaism, God has no set gender, nor any set dimensions. So God is however each person experiences God. Some people will experience God in a gendered fashion, some people will experience God in a non-gendered fashion. Some people will experience God in an anthropomorphic fashion, some in an ethereal, some in a material fashion, and some just pray to have a moment of meditation, a moment of connection with something that is greater than the individual human experience. So how do you 
address God, then if if God doesn't have, does God have a pronoun? Not in Reformed Judaism. So how do you go about speaking to God? You can always use you if you want to address God directly. And Reformed Judaism has gotten creative. For example, the traditional depiction of God in many prayer books, in many writings on on Judaism will use male pronouns for God. He did this. The Lord is our savior. He will do this. In Reformed Judaism, we just removed the pronouns. It's um <laughs> it's a uh, it's a transphobe's Worst nightmare and best fever dream, I suppose. There are no pronouns. So when they say, I don't use pronouns. Well, of course, obviously, you know, everyone, everyone human does use pronouns, whether they realize it or not. However, Reformed Judaism has actually removed God's pronouns. So we will say, you know, blessed are you, God, who does this. Blessed are you, God, who creates God's creatures. And it just removes the gender of God from the set text, Mm -hmm. allowing each person to have an individual experience of God. I really feel like with neo-pronouns becoming a thing, it's honestly just people realizing we all have a spirit. Right. And that... The, these these words, these pronouns that we box ourselves into and say this is how I identify, this is it's like then you don't you don't get the wholeness of a person. You really don't. Yeah. And I I love how that's in a religion that so many people know Jewish people but have no idea like you have to learn so much for your spirituality. You attend things often. You had to go to a lot of school for it, I assume. It was in your family. Yes and no. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in a rich, diverse Jewish community. And I did attend a private Jewish day school for eight years where I was taught you know, some of the ins and outs of what does it mean to be a Jewish person, what is Jewish history, what are Jewish ideals, what are ways in which you can live your life Jewishly, or just what are ways that, you know, you can live your life and feel fulfilled, whether you end up identifying personally, publicly as Jewish, whatever that means to you. And even still, I walked away from Judaism for a couple years. I was completely secular for a few years. I did not practice Judaism. I barely identified as Jewish. And then I came back. And why did you leave? Was that just because you didn't really know who you were or? Yeah, that was part of it. Um, I also, so I grew up with sort of one foot in the reform movement, which is where I am now and one foot in the conservative movement. And this is conservative not in the political sense of progressive or conservative. This is a different usage of that same word. 
uh, conservative Judaism has attempted to sort of walk a line between traditional orthodox practice and the realities of living in a secular society. And conservative Judaism has still maintained, for the most part, a male gendering of God, as well as some more conservative, now in the political word, ideologies with regards to gender norms, how people should live, dress, exist in the world, and I didn't feel at home there. Yeah. So I I left, and I came back and found my own home, which is now in Reform Judaism, which really promotes a very individual experience, while also offering a very rich community. So I've always felt very at home in my Reform congregation, presenting as I am, existing as I am. You know, I have I have tattoos. It's it's something that traditional Jews do not do. Yeah. Um, there is a specific commandment <laughs> in Torah Uh-oh, that yes. says, you know, you shall not, you know, make marks or engravings on your skin. Specifically, it's referring to practices of mourning, that when someone dies, you should not cut your skin or mar your body in grief. Don't self-harm. And that's how I've interpreted it, as don't self-harm. So my tattoos are a way to honor my body, to decorate my body, and to make my body into a beautiful space, especially because I did struggle a lot with mental illness and I did self-harm, I did harm my body. And tattoos have been a way for me to reclaim my body and put beautiful images over areas where I I had marred my own self. That's really brave of you to say and um, I'll definitely like, that's one of the things that I'm able to control myself if I'm going to self-harm in any way, like, I will scratch myself. Mm -hmm. And to stop myself from doing that, it's honestly, like, a grounding behavior that I'm trying to do is ground myself and feel something. Mm -hmm. But I really need to remember, and it really works, is is just, like, that is not honoring anything, that's not Mm -hmm. honoring myself, that's not putting, you know, like, I have to be I have to focus on what will really ground me, and it's not going to be that. Like, yeah. I love the way that you thought about your tattoos and, and what that's done for you. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Thank you. And even so, in a conservative synagogue, I've always felt the need to cover them up. Mm-hmm. And when they have peeked out underneath a sleeve, you know, I've had people who will genuinely say like oh your tattoo is so lovely it's so beautiful can you tell me about it and i've had honestly more people who have given me some side eye oh yeah or give me the ah you have a tattoo (laughs) yes what is that that you have there on your arm i see thank you for asking (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it just it it made me feel uncomfortable in my own self in that space. 
Whereas in my reformed congregation, a lot of people have tattoos. Mm -hmm. And it's not the problem. It's not the problem. It's it's not causing harm. It's just it's a personal thing. And you know, especially in older congregations, which conservative congregations tend to be older in the sense of their demographics, we still have people who associate tattoos specifically with the Holocaust. Oh. Right. So you get an extra layer there because... Why would you want to... Why would you ever want to put a tattoo on yourself when for so many millennia, Jews specifically would not tattoo themselves, did not tattoo themselves, and then were forced to be tattooed. People were physically assaulted. Their bodies were changed without their consent, given tattoos, and they were not a way to honor their bodies. They were not a way to honor that person. They were a way to demean and dehumanize that person. And so to then have someone from a younger generation voluntarily put a tattoo on themselves, some people see that as a mark of disrespecting our own history and disrespecting the people whose bodies were assaulted, the people who did not have a choice, the people whose voices and humanity were stripped from them. Right. So how do you so hard because then the question is like how how can you reclaim your identity and reclaim your religion and like you don't want to forget the past right you want that to be informing your future and you don't want to disrespect your family or the people in your religion and that's that must be a really difficult stance that you take of trying to kind of redefine a new era and it still is. being respectful and do you have like any has has anybody come at you with that before? Not directly. Mm-hmm. I got my first tattoo at 20. I am the third child in my family mm-hmm. and I was the third child to get a tattoo. Oh. So the guilt is kind of off your shoulders. It's a little bit off my shoulders yeah. and there was also still some disappointment that you know I was getting a tattoo like maybe there's still some hope. Maybe there maybe there's still a little hope for Jess. Maybe she wouldn't do it. Oh, now she has the most. Oops. Oh. <laughs> um, I have to go to med school to prove that. You're I know, okay. right? <laughs> so I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there have been many regulations on Jewish burials, and it was standard practice for many many centuries not to bury in a Jewish cemetery any individual who has a tattoo. Why? Because there is a specific commandment against tattooing yourself. Then what about the Holocaust? There you go. So, it was only in the mid-20th century, and all of a sudden there was a desperate need for people who bore tattoos not through their own choices, who needed respectful, honorable burials in a Jewish setting that, as a community, Jews were forced to consider, is this still 
completely taboo. I mean, is the, is the democracy, like, do you still have the power to change things in a religion? It's so hard to know, like, do you get the message from God? Are you allowed to do this now? Right, so the laws regarding burial in the Jewish cemetery changed. They needed to be changed, and so they did change. And I I am sure that there are still Jewish cemeteries that would not accept a person if they have tattoos that they themselves chose. Whereas if you were talking about a Holocaust survival survivor, they would, of course, allow that person to be buried there. Whereas a person like me, who has chosen tattoos for themselves, may not be accepted. That said, I myself would not want to be buried there. Yeah. So it's not a problem. It reflect. Right, it doesn't reflect who I am as a person, the ideals that I follow in my own life. So it's not a problem that I'm anticipating myself or my survivors, you know, experiencing. Yeah. Um, and there's also been a reframing of what that specific mitzvah says and means. So as we just talked about, the actual wording of the commandment is not to self-harm and not to do practices that are harmful to your body. Now, if you think about what tattoos were like two and a half thousand years ago when Torah was written, tattoos were a dangerous endeavor. Tattoos in an unsafe environment today are still a dangerous endeavor. You are opening your skin up to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of tiny little punctures, which can open you up to major, major infections. So in an ancient setting, a tattoo could be, and often was, very dangerous and very harmful. In today's modern settings, a tattoo carries very little risk if done in an appropriate, clean environment. So I equate it more so with some of the dietary restrictions of Jewish law, which can be traced to some dietary practices that carry a lot of risks. Uh, One of the most well-known restrictions is not to eat pork or shellfish. Both of those are foods that carry higher risks than other meats. Because it's a practical reason. Mm -hmm. You know, pigs are omnivores. They will eat anything, literally anything. Mm including other pigs and humans. Therefore, they are not considered clean animals in the sense of eating them does not carry risk. Because eating them does carry a risk, especially in a much older environment, wherein you can't necessarily monitor everything that the pig is eating, you can't necessarily make sure that the pig themselves are healthy, and the same with shellfish. Most of them are bottom feeders. They eat whatever drifts down to the bottom of wherever they live. And so they're much more likely to carry pathogens than a salmon will. Do you eat these foods? I eat shellfish. 
I don't eat pork. I can't resist crab. Oh, crab is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just I don't eat red meat just as a personal that makes preference. Sense. I mean, personally, I, w- I went through I've gone through several periods where I've just been like red red meat does not make me feel very good. Right. It just doesn't. Yeah. And like that's not to be in any certain strict way with myself. I'll still eat red meat if it's that's what's happening. Yeah. But yeah, like I. I prefer not to have a hamburger because I know it'll make me feel terrible and it's usually paired with cheese. And those are two deadly combinations, to be honest. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that, it's so interesting that, like, all of this stuff has a practicality to it and it's out of context in our modern society. It's, it's all It all makes sense if you lived back then, like, why these rules are the way they are. It's like so nobody dies right so nobody gets sick and nobody dies and um the way even just talking about fire earlier how you recognize this is a thing that you know causes us to it, it's almost subliminal the way that it makes our mind want to start turning and creating and a fire a fire means cooking a fire mm-hmm. means energy yeah, a fire means you are doing things, you are making, you are creating, you are changing the world right. in some way, as simple as combusting the wood. I think today, like, so many people, even just the the amount of knowledge that you have about your own religion, and, and even the parts of the religion where you are not even really a part of, like, you know so much about it, and people nowadays like our age-ish like try to latch on to different angles of spirituality whether it's astrology or even self-care practices are like forms of like micro forms of spirituality micro dosing spirituality spirituality. and so like you know you go on your little hot girl walk yeah and that's a micro dose of spirituality right you take a meditative bath right and it's a micro dose of spirituality yes but then you know in a part of an already established religion there's this this area that we need to be able to kind of reform it and we need to be able to accept these new things and open it up to to the knowledge that we have obtained mm-hmm. in the modern day. But then we also need to hold those traditions because it, it keeps us in line with our human nature. And even you just saying, you know, you can take a 25-hour Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Like and me being like that sounds illegal. <laughs> you can only you can only take your hot girl walk for twenty minutes and then you gotta go somewhere. Right. You, know? you have to, you have to put your you have to schedule your self care. You have to like schedule all this stuff and mm-hmm. not to say that um like Shabbat isn't already a scheduled thing for a, a Saturday a Friday night. It, a it is a ske- a scheduled thing and that's one of the beautiful things about yes. it to me. But you get get all the time for right it, and it's it, you have to do it mm-hmm. but I, I do love that it is it is scheduled but it, it is like strict in a good way like people are always like oh, you're not allowed to work on this day it's so stupid like what if I need to it's just like it just means that 
you should chill out. Right. And that doesn't mean that, you know, for me, it doesn't mean that I keep Shabbat every Saturday. Mm-hmm. It means that I try. Mm-hmm. It means that I try to give myself and my family, my household, a day to just be. Because there's so many things that we have to do. There's so many things that need to be done in this world. And one of the things that needs to be done is to chill, to take time. I mean, the the physical and mental benefits of taking time Mm -hmm. to not worry as much as you can about the affairs over which you do not have control mm-hmm. they're astounding just and that's what religion is is like god mm-hmm. has control and that's why so many people flock to religion and and mostly why i hear people joining christianity out of nowhere mm-hmm. you know it's it's like giving up your control mm-hmm. which can be good but it can also be so destructive if you're if you have no like traditions or grounding or schedule right and if you don't retain the fact that you do have control over some things you have to you have control over Uh how you live your own life you have control over what you put out into the world you have control over how you yourself respond to the situations in which you find yourself you don't always have control over the situations themselves or how and when you end up in those situations, but you do have control. And, and it matters. And it matters. And it matters to take time to reflect on what truly is within your control and what is not, and to say, okay, I'm going to give time right now to that which is in my control. I'm going to better myself for an hour by exercising by reading a book that will stimulate my mind on this subject, by taking an hour to take care of a household chore that has been weighing on me, that needs to be done in order for me to feel peace in my own home, as well as to take time and say, I don't have control over the war in Ukraine. I am feeling anxiety about it. I am feeling powerless. I am feeling some way about this and I know I have no control over it so what can I do and taking time to reflect and say this is beyond me this is beyond what I am capable of handling right now this is beyond what I am capable of influencing and that doesn't mean that everything is beyond me it's it's important for you to say okay what can I do and what you can do is reflect on your feelings and that's right. that is so important that and that counts the way that that counts to what you can do yeah is like be, just being mindful about it like it's it's good that you care mm-hmm. it is good that you care and why don't you because you are so much in distress about how you don't have any control over the war in ukraine how about you just take a second to yourself and think about it and I don't know reflect on how you feel and figure out the words that you need to say in a prayer format and we don't we don't really pray people don't get praying anymore no it people took me a get... long time to figure out what it means to me yeah 
because I identified for many years as an atheist. Right. I would love to. I would love to um, hear how you came to praying. Then I think a yeah. lot of people, because praying isn't, you know, praying is about a, a connection, right? A connection to God. But you have to think about what God is. Right. You know, God doesn't have to be a man. Right. You know, a man in the sky. Mm-hmm. It's about connecting to nature. Yeah. It's it's connecting to your environment. Because God is all around us. And I'm not trying to convert anybody who's listening to this podcast, but I, I am trying to convert people to feeling a connection with the world again. Certainly. Mm-hmm. So I, like I said, I grew up with one foot in conservative Judaism, which uses gendered God language and anthropomorphic gendered God language. So God sometimes has hands. Sometimes God has feet. God can be a man, usually, in more traditional practices. And that didn't feel right to me. I rejected the concept of a God who looked like a man, who had the experiences of a man, and who was somehow supposed to be omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. But men can't do anything. Right, right. <laughs> you know, what can a man do? A man cannot be in two places at one time. A woman, though. <laughs> but it's more than that. It's yeah. more than that. And as young as about eight years old, I had this revelation that if there was a god who existed the way that I had been taught God existed, who was omnipotent, omnipresent, and omnipotent, who knew all of the terrible things that happen in the world, and who chose not to do anything about that, who chose to allow atrocities to continue, that was not a God I felt deserved my prayers. Likewise, if there was a God who knew that all of these things happened, but was unable to control them, that was not a God who deserved my worship, my praise. And if there was a God who perhaps created our world, made it all nice, made everything work well, and then said, I'm out, peace, and was just gone, again, not a figure worthy of my devotion. And so I identified for a very long time as an atheist, saying I do not believe that there is a God the way that I have been taught there is a God. I believe in the natural laws of the world. I believe in, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, all of these things. And truly, it was only within the past two years that I started saying, wait, what if God is just not how I was raised to believe and experience God? What if I can experience a different sort of God? Mm-hmm. Because I started praying oh regularly mm-hmm. about three and a half to four years ago. At first, it was very reluctantly, really. It was just sort of, I had joined this congregation, um, I was working for this congregation, and so I was expected to pray. 
I knew the melodies, I knew the words, they were ingrained in me from childhood, so I sort of just repeated them by rote, and I didn't feel much of a connection to it. I love Jewish melodies, by the way. Yeah. Oh my god. In Catholic Church, they started singing, I'm sorry, I really hope you can hold your train of thought. Absolutely. But, like, I went back to a Catholic Church maybe five years ago, and just for the fun of it, and... They were singing like the new wave music, and I was like, no, like a guy with a guitar being like, I love you, Jesus. <laughs> it was, I grew up with like the mystery of faith, and I would be like, oh my god. All those minor keys. Yes, the minor keys. And yeah. so Judaism, the way that they keep the minor keys. Oh, yeah, in there, it's all in A or D minor. <laughs> oh, it's so good. You guys, the music is so good. I'm there for the music, I'm, I'm totally there for the music. Yeah. But, anyways, so. Right. So I, I came back to Judaism uh-huh. and I was saying these prayers and I was saying all of these prayers that are directly addressing God. And I had this moment where I'm sitting, this was over Zoom because we were still in the Zoom world. And I was just sitting in my chair going, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. What am I actually doing here? I am mouthing words. I'm not even saying them out loud because it's over Zoom, I'm muted, no one can hear me. So I'm just literally mouthing the words, what am I doing? I, you know, I'm supposed to be here. (laughs) Wait, I love this picture, you're sitting in front of your computer on Zoom. Completely silent. Alone. Alone in a room. (laughs) I'm mouthing prayers. And the emptiness for real. It, completely empty. It's it's physically empty, it's spiritually empty. And I'm having this realization of why? What what am I doing here? I have this time. This time that is specifically set aside out of our schedule for me to be doing something. So I started taking that time as personal meditation. I said, you know what, I don't believe in the God that I think that everyone else is praying to. So I'm gonna do my own thing. I'll say the same words. I'll go along with the melodies. I'm just gonna have my own experience. I'm not gonna worry about what they're doing. I'm not gonna worry about what they're experiencing, what they're thinking about. I'm just gonna worry about myself right now. And for about a year and a half, that's what I did. Whenever I prayed, it was to myself. And that probably sounds very blasphemous that I prayed to myself, for myself, to myself. Is God not within you? Is God not within me? And it was giving myself permission to do that, to take time to figure out what I was doing. And it's not like you're revving yourself up to, like, it's not like I am God, it's like, it's God, you know, is here with me, in right. me, and if, if I can't feel God out there, I can just at least try to be in tune with my own body and where God is in here, mm-hmm. you know? And I specifically set aside, you know, what is God? Who is God? What is God like? And said, I'll get there. I'm going to work on getting in touch with myself because myself is much smaller than God and theoretically easier to understand. So I took that time, I took that year and a half 
to relearn the words, relearn the melodies, and start forming a connection to what it actually meant. So there are prayers that are said at different points in the day. The prayer that is said the most frequently in the day is called the Shema, and it's one of the central existences, I suppose, of, of Jewish faith. It's a very simple prayer. It's very short as prayers go. And it, it says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Listen, O Israel. Adonai is our God. Adonai is one. And Adonai is just a name for God that we have. The literal translation is my Lord. However, it is used more so as a name than a title in modern Jewish practice. And after that phrase is said, there's another phrase that is said traditionally in an undertone. It's said quietly to the self rather than, you know, projected out like that first line. It says, Baruch Shem Kevod Machuto Leolam Vaed. Don't worry about it. Okay, I'm going to listen back and I'm going to be... Okay. And it means, blessed is the name of God now and forever. And it's said, like I said, to the self. And it's this is a prayer that is said traditionally as the first conscious thought that one has in the morning. Several times throughout the day in structured prayer services and again as the last conscious thought before bed. It is also a prayer that is traditionally in some ways associated with death because if someone knows that they are dying, knows when the moment of death is coming, if they are able to, a traditional Jew will say the Shema so that it is their last conscious thought ever. And truly the Shema is a declaration that says, I am one of the people of Israel, and I am calling out, listen, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, listen, Israel, I am one of you. I am connected to this culture. And I started saying the Shema. I have quietly in my own mind said the Shema, every night before bed, back to earliest memory. It's something that I really don't share with people. It's just something that was part of my own personal practice. But then I started saying the Shema in the morning as well. And sometimes throughout the day, if I just had a moment when I felt like I wanted to connect with a greater community, to say, you know, I don't think I am experiencing this world alone. I I want to be part of a greater community. I am part of a greater community, and I'm calling out to that community. And so through the Shema, I was able to rediscover what it means to pray. And through the Shema, through incorporating some of these prayers, I was able to reconfigure what God is to me. And to me, God is not anthropomorphic. God does not have hands or fingers any more than the wind does, and yet the wind can rustle my hair as easily as a hand. 
the sea can shape stone just like a person, slower, certainly, but with the same power. And for me, God became the forces that push life forward, the natural forces that push life into being. Now, whether that's a directed process or whether that's a series of miraculous um, coincidence, it's certainly something for which I'm grateful. So for me, God is just life. It's, it's something greater than the individual experience. Can you talk a little bit about that um, connection to nature? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes. So Judaism, in the way that I practice it, in Reform Judaism, strongly encourages a connection with the natural world. So listening to your podcast episode about trees was so timely because my connection to the outside world, to the natural world, very, very much coincided and went alongside with my reconnection with Judaism. And Judaism has several holidays that are specifically focused on reasserting, reconnecting that existence that we have not just, you know, in the world that we build, but in the world that we inhabit, the world in which we are born that shapes us as much as we shape it. So you talked a bit about Tu B'Shvat in your episode. And Tu B'Shvat is a holiday, it's, um, the name of it just means the 15th of the month of Shvat. So it's sort of like the 4th of July in the sense of naming the holiday after the date on which it falls. And it is, in fact, the birthday of the trees. Yes, I'm so glad I got that right off the top of my head. Because I read about it from the same book several times over. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but then I was pulling it from my head. So, good. It's the birthday of trees. It's the birthday of the trees. And so you might be wondering, why do all of the trees have one birthday? They weren't all planted on the same day. And the answer actually goes back over 2,000 years. Because in Torah, we are commanded, there are actually a lot of commandments about trees. And one of the specific commandments is about fruit and food producing trees. That for the first three years, that a. (laughs) For the first three years that a tree produces food, that food is not to be consumed by the person who planted the tree. That food is consecrated to God, to wherever it falls, to if it is, if it becomes, you know, a windfall and it is picked up by someone who is needy, it belongs to them. If it is picked up by another animal, it belongs to them. If it decomposes and goes back to the earth, it belongs to the earth. It does not belong to the farmer who planted it. What did I say about Eve if she right. just waited? If she just, if she, she didn't have to pick it off the tree, you know? <laughs> it's supposed to fall if you need it. It will fall down. It will present itself to you at the right time. Okay, this is crazy. So yeah, don't eat the fruit don't, for the first few years. Don't eat the, fir- the fruit for the first three years. Mm-hmm. In the fourth year, the fruit is gathered and 
officially consecrated to God. It was taken to the ancient temple in Jerusalem and offered as a sacrifice. The so, fruit. The fruit. Oh my god. I was just, Not all sacrifices were animals. I, know, I was just... I Yesterday, I was thinking... I was eating a plum cot. Mm. And my experience with this plum cot, it was green. And you take a bite and it's the most fleshy, like, ruby red. It's darker <sighs> than that. It's like blood red. And you, it looks like flesh, but it's so sweet. And I'm like, this is like... This is what we're supposed to be eating for communion. No. <laughs> I was like, this is great. My mind was just blown. I love I love the colors of fruit. Oh yeah. And especially when I take a bite of fruit and it reveals its beautiful juicy colors. Mm. I'm like, oh, it's so good. And this was just like flesh. And I was like, I wonder if they oh, I was watching El Dorado. Um, have you the Disney one? That? Yeah. I love that film. I just watched it the first time. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, my boyfriend's Peruvian. So it was all about the colonization and, you know, the gold and the Incas. But anyways, I'm like, sacrificing fruit. Like, I bet bet this had to happen. Yeah. So it did. It did. Makes so much sense. It's It's the meat of the earth. Right. And so in the fourth year, all of the fruit is gathered and offered as an official sacrifice. In the fifth year and beyond, now the farmer and their families, they may harvest their fruit and consume it themselves. And so the question is, are you going to keep a registry of when each specific tree was planted and when each specific tree was starting to produce fruit? No, you're not because you plant in rows, you plant in orchards. And so the rabbis came up with a system of determining the age of a tree by saying that the fruit that was produced, so the fruit that is growing on a tree by the time Tu B'Shvat comes, which um, again, this is the month of Shvat in the lunar calendar. It typically falls in mid-February for the Gregorian calendar. So the fruit that is already growing on the tree at that date, that belongs to the previous year. So that becomes one year old. And so that's the birthday of the tree. And so Tu B'Shvat was initially, it, it was like a tax holiday because if your tree reaches four years old, well, then you take that fruit and you bring it to the temple and you offer it as your, your tax your sacrifice. Right. And it evolved over time to become a celebration of all plants and just sort of a day to recognize and celebrate their growth. To say, hey tree, you're another year older. Mazel tov! You made it another year. That's so beautiful. And it is in terms of, you know, religious observance, it is considered a minor holiday. It is written in, you know, our very, very old texts, but it's not actually consecrated in Torah. We are not commanded to celebrate the 15th of the month of Shabbat with this and this celebration. It's something that the rabbis developed in order to fulfill a commandment in Torah on... Is it like tithing? It's like tithing, yeah. That's what I'm like, tithing never 
makes sense to me because obviously the church will get so much money. Right. And I'm like, instead of money, like, you're supposed to be giving back to God, giving back to the church. Like, if God is, is nature, like, that's what it should be, an act of, like, sacrifice to nature. Right. You know, cutting a fruit and planting a seed. Yeah. So in the modern practice, Tubishvat has actually increased again in terms of how it's practiced and celebrated, and it's become, for many Jews, a major spiritual holiday, just a really a high point in the year. It comes for us in Wisconsin, in America, at the end of a long winter. It comes typically when there is still snow and ice on the ground. March? Late February, oh, mid to late February. Okay. So oh, yeah, that's definitely snow and ice on the ground. Yeah, and we're supposed to be celebrating the birthday of the trees. And it's like, oh wow, the trees <laughs> that are, you know, they look dead. Yeah, they don't look lively. But it's kind of giving the energy back. So it's like, spring right. is here, you guys. Like, spring is here. You can up. do it. Wake up! Wake up! Wake yes. up! And actually, if you go to Israel, Tubishvat is when Israel is at its most ephemeral beauty because all of the trees are blooming especially the almond trees they are absolutely stunning oh my God. at that I time love to see an almond tree. oh god i love yeah. almond things and just to see them in full bloom to smell and them in smells, full bloom it probably just smells incredible oh, it's i love the smell of almond yeah, it's incredible. And having it be a tree, I, I cannot even imagine. Like, I need to go right. experience this. Yeah, so Tubishvat became a day to reaffirm our connection and our investment mm-hmm. in the natural world. People plant trees on that day. People will start their gardens for the year. So again, in a colder climate, people will start usually planting their indoor Plants that they'll eventually bring outside right. at Tubishvat. Mm-hmm. And it's just a way to sort of kickstart that investment mm-hmm. in the natural world. And so, like I said, it's a minor holiday. However, it's really fun and it's wonderful and it's a great way for us to keep the next generations involved. Um, my synagogue, we always have family education programs for Tubishvat to talk about the importance of trees and how much we really do rely on them for every element of our well-being. Yeah. However, Judaism also has a major holiday that is all about the connection with the natural world. And it's one that's coming up as of when we are recording this episode. It is called Sukkot. And it is named after the central structure of this holiday, the sukkah, which is a booth, is is how it's traditionally translated from Torah, that is a temporary dwelling that we are commanded to build and live in for a week. What? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's one of the most major Jewish holidays that most people never have heard about. No, I've never heard of this. Right. So the sukkah, we have very specific commandments about 
the dimensions that it has to be because there are a lot of things that we are actually commanded to do. We are commanded to dwell in the sukkah. And do you do it? I personally do <laughs> not have a sukkah. My, my husband and I, we don't have one. But people, people but do. People do. People, they'll make a point to, at the very least, eat some, if not all, of their meals in the sukkah. And many people sleep in the sukkah for a full week. And... Some of the interesting things are that the walls must be built of natural material. The entire sukkah actually must be built of natural materials. There should be no metal involved in building. At least, you know, you can have some nails, but you should not be building, you know, metal sheets for, it for the walls. It should be wood. It should be other forms of, of natural building materials. You can use straw. Something sound want. can absorb. <laughs> not just reflect right yeah. and specifically the roof of the dwelling is um one of my favorite hebrew words schach i'm not gonna try that yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be coughing if i try that yeah it's um wow you, it's it a lot in the back talent. of the throat yeah uh schach is what we are commanded to make the roof out of. It must be natural materials with a maximum width. Each piece can only be about 14 centimeters wide because you must be able to see through the roof. You must be able to see the stars through the roof and rain must be able to fall through the roof. Not necessarily a light drizzle, but a substantial rain must be able to fall through the roof. Oh my god. Now that means that people who are dwelling in the sukkah may very well get a little damp. Yeah. And that's just sort of something that happens when you are living in a natural environment. That's what happens. Right. So the reason why we celebrate this holiday is actually to commemorate the 40 years of traveling through the wilderness that is recounted in Torah, that an entire generation lived and died in the wilderness. And so to remember that and to reaffirm our connection with the natural world, to remember that we have not always been so settled, so secure, so deeply rooted in one place as we are now, we spend a full week in these temporary dwellings. Oh my god. Like, we don't we don't even touch natural materials anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about, I wake up, and I touch, you know, the faucet, the metal faucet. The one natural thing I touch is water. Probably right. that's the only natural thing that I touch. It's just one element beside... And then air. Yeah. The air that I'm getting outside might not be too good and the air I'm getting inside is filtered or dusty it's not Mm -hmm. the clean tree air Mm -hmm. and and the water I'm feeling is also processed right and and rainwater makes my hair so soft (laughs) you know and it's and it's the the water that I do touch has metals and all kinds of deposits in it and I never get to just touch wood or touch the ground Mm -hmm. nobody's barefoot Mm -hmm. anymore and we're always covered up in something too Mm -hmm. so i love that you just have to spend a week a week in a booth trying to touch and be with these natural things
friends in a booth. Right. And it's also a very community-centered holiday. It's about remembering that we are part of a greater community. So for the seven nights, because Jewish holidays are marked by nights rather than days, um, our days actually start at night. It's it's a whole thing. We can get into it if you would like to. <laughs> but it, like everything else, it has its origins in Torah where it says, and there was evening and there was morning, a first day. So we follow that day starts at night. Um, so Sukkot lasts anywhere from seven to nine days, depending on who you ask and where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, there's for, Older weather, seven days? Actually, seven. no. <gasps> They're like... It's actually Jews in the diaspora, so Jews who are living outside of Israel mm-hmm. celebrate for an extra day. Good for them! Right. It, That's good. That's, that makes sense, actually. Part of it is sort of just like a, hey, you're not living in Israel, so have an extra day to celebrate. The other part is actually kind of funny and practical. If you think about how holidays used to be marked, you know, the start of an event was noticed at one point, and then from a hilltop, it was communicated to the next community over with bonfires, with horns, transferring that message from one place to another. You couldn't send a text to someone and say, hey, Shabbat's starting. Yes. Hey, the new moon's up. I love how people used to get on the hills. On the hills. And then they would light a fire. Right. Or blow a hole. Like, I wish we did that. I wish we did that. Oh, it's so cool. <sighs> and it takes time yeah. to transfer that message. So if you're living far from where the holiday is meant to be starting, there's a chance that by the time the message gets to you, you've missed some time of that holiday. So they add on an extra day to make sure that you are celebrating the correct amount of time. I love that this is a celebration. Like most people would be like, this is torture. Sukkot (laughs) is actually one of our most joyous holidays. So you might think that living outside the comfort of your own home might be a holiday that's all about, you know, pensive reflection on, ah, we wandered in the desert for 40 years, and so we must reenact their suffering by doing this to ourselves. No, it is one of our most joyous holidays. It's all about the joy that's found in the community, the joy that's found in connecting ourselves to nature, in giving ourselves up to the elements and trusting that we will be okay. It's actually one of the times when chidur mitzvah, which means beautifying the mitzvah, beautifying the commandment comes into play because it is very traditional for people to host parties to decorate their sukkah. Yes. And so it's a chance- I'm about to be, I'm about to be converted. It's. <laughs> It's a really joyous holiday. Wow. It's all about <laughs> celebrating the bounty of nature, celebrating this wonderful, incredible world that we're blessed to live in. And so it's it's a fun holiday and it ends with Torah, as our holidays begin and end with Torah. It ends with the renewal of Torah. So in a Jewish community, we read the entirety of the Torah, um, the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy um, in English. We read that whole section, that whole book of uh, Bible, what 
many people might be familiar with is calling the Old Testament. We read that whole thing once a year. Like, we read through the entire book over the course of a year. That's so much more entertaining than the New Testament. (laughs) And we do that in a cycle. Yeah. So it's not like we read it, we read the whole thing in a year and then we're done with it. We have a holiday called Simchat Torah, which literally means the joy of Torah, joyous Torah. Simcha is joy, happiness. Torah is Torah. And it is when we finish the last parsha, the last portion of Torah, and immediately start again at the beginning. When, how does it end then? Like, what, I don't understand how, how, like, Bibles end when a community lives on. Are there any ways you can add? Is there anything written like that? Do you know Hmm. Well, the actual text of Torah does not change. Specifically, it does not change. There are so many rules involved in writing a Torah because it must be done incredibly meticulously in order to preserve every pen stroke to make sure that every letter is copied perfectly so that there is no loss, there is no degradation of the text. However, outside of that specific text, we have enormous bodies of what's called midrash. I like to call it filling in the gaps because Torah, it's an old text. The actual text of Torah can be much more like lyric poetry than prose, which means that you may be told that things happen and you don't get any of the inner workings on how is this character experiencing what's going on, what happened in the interim between this and this, because sometimes 40 years pass and you don't hear anything about what happened during that time. But when these people show up again, they're changed. So what happened in that time? That's where we have Midrash. It's a collection of sacred stories that build on Torah, that elaborate on Torah. Um, It's a tradition going back two and a half thousand years of people who have studied the text said, and what else is happening? What else is going on? As well as debating the finer points of a lot of laws and saying, well, is this law specifically still relevant to us? Mm -hmm. How can we adapt this law in order to be relevant to us, to be meaningful for us in our modern society. Yeah, I think I think that's like a huge reason, you know, not just because people don't know how to pray, but the, because people don't understand how something so old could possibly be relevant right now. I mean, obviously people are trying to connect it to where they are now because we live in the here and now. I like how you described it as like lyric poetry. Yeah. There's always something that we're going to have to interpret, mm-hmm. and especially when it comes to nature and the natural laws, and if that's what God really is, it's very moment by moment and ever-changing, but always staying the same. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I kind of talked about with my tree episode was, you know, you walk in the woods and, and you can feel that everything's moving, but it's all, all the same, and that's kind of how history is and how religion is. It's like an 
and humanity it, it honestly never changes we have, have always had the exact same types of people throughout every era of history mm-hmm. um, it's just how we go about interacting with all the different things that happen around us yeah I actually want to build off something else that you talked about in your tree episode yes please so in Judaism we frequently talk about the Torah as Etz Chaim the tree of life and so there's so much symbolism talking about the the actual scrolls that we have of Torah as trees of life because they are they, they were are. trees so uh, the the actual scrolls about... yes okay so... are are made up of wooden almost dowels that are called etzechaim trees of life and then parchment made from natural animal skins the inks are made of natural materials and they are inscribed using natural materials no metal is allowed to be used in the creation of a Torah scroll so that means no metal pens that means no metal instruments are used to shape the the scroll to shape the parchment anything like that it's a living document while also remaining fixed. So the text does not change. The text stays the same. We ourselves change around it. And I was reminded of this phenomenal concept in your episode on trees when you talked about this feeling that I've also experienced when you look at a tree, especially a really grand old tree, and you think about how many lives has this tree seen? How many lives has this tree been a central fixture in? How many couples have been married underneath the tree branches? How many children have climbed up into the trees and created their own world, their own rooms inside the branches of the trees? How many lives has this tree seen? And so when we talk about Torah as a tree of life, the tree has not changed. The tree has watched us change. We have changed around the tree and it is not dead just because we don't see it changing. It it reminds me of my great grandpa in a wheelchair every like before he died, every family gathering, he wouldn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. He would just sit there and like take it all in. And we would touch him, we would give him a hug, whatever, hi, great grandpa. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like a tree that just kind of sits there and experiences. And I don't see him changing at all. Mm-hmm. He looked the exact same when he died as when I knew him from when I was little because he's always been old to me. Sure. And that's like how trees are. It's like they will always be old unless they are mm-hmm. young trees, unless we're celebrating right. their, you know, their new birthdays, their one-year-old birthday. But go ahead, keep going. I I think that's most of what I wanted to say. Yeah. That there just is such a a rich history of referring to things that do not change as trees that give us life, that sustain us, that shelter us, that give us all that we need, the air that we need to breathe. 
while they themselves don't change, as far as we can see, and yet our understanding of them can change so dramatically. And so while they may sit and look at us, and their shapes may not change, that doesn't mean that they're dead. They are living and ever-evolving as all life is ever-evolving. It's like we, when you are a young person, or any age, when you're any age and you're looking for spirituality, it always starts as like this journey of like, I don't know who I am, I don't know what this is, and so you have to start praying to yourself almost and yeah. figuring out what that means to you. But then once you start to realize and recognize things like the trees and how they exist and they live and how they've seen things and experienced things, you start to realize there's something a little greater and there's something a little more to pray for and pray to. And I think like when people our age or looking into astrology it's very much what's my personality and who, how do I function in this world and mm-hmm. what are the, the emotions that I typically carry when I handle these situations and you know you go to therapy or you go to therapy you might not be in astrology you have your therapist and yeah. everybody needs a therapist and whatever but that's also like it's it's just like this journey into ourselves because we're we're even so disconnected from ourselves but if we just got outside looked at the tree from our windows just for a second and just thought about literally anything mm-hmm. that the tree makes us think about the way that trees are so embedded into ancient religion is like it seems like the obvious answer to me that we should shape our religion, our identity, our spirituality, Mm -hmm. and how we're now in this time of climate emergency, and how it means a lot more than carbon dioxide. Yeah. You know. That this this world was here long before us, Mm -hmm. and as you said, trees were the beginning and will be the end, that our answer for how to survive how to thrive i don't think it exists in in a cubicle it's outside it's it's interacting with this world not hiding away from it yeah and it's going to be given to us in a way of poetry it's going to be given to us in a way that we have to take time to interpret (laughs) and we're going to have to talk about with a lot of people and think about think about and and pray about yeah. You know, and it's it's a constant effort of, of interpreting nature's message to us, and that's what religion is, is in, in the interpretation of nature's message. And if God isn't, you know, everything, that means nature. I think about when I was a kid, I had a similar journey. I think I'm back to the point where I thought about God the same way that I did when I was six years old. And I would walk around like the back path and I would just like look at the trees and touch the trees and I would think about God. And I don't know why I thought about God as a kid, but I did a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if other kids thought about God as much as I did, but I thought about God and I thought about fairies and that's what I thought about. Yeah. And just like kind of like the otherworldly nature of, of the wilderness and where it brought me. And I would pray a lot as a child. I would pray every night before bed. 
And I don't know if that was like my baby OCD. It was like, I need to pray before I go to bed or else I'll die or something. Oh, certainly part of mine. It was. But um, I, I prayed every single night. And what I would do is I, I would pray to, I would be like, God, take this message to my to my Aunt Kim. So my Aunt Kim mm-hmm. died when I was three, giving birth to my cousin. And so every single night I would pray to my Aunt Kim. And then I would like pray to God as like nature because mm-hmm. I saw God as nature yeah. and I saw God as like not a man, just I, I knew God was nature when I was a kid because mm-hmm. that's where I experienced whatever the hell I thought God was. And, you know, as I grew up and I started learning about like what Christianity was and like Jesus, I'm like, this is a little too much. Like you guys mm-hmm. are kind of doing too much to what God is. Yeah. You know, God is, God is super like intricate and, and complicated, but it's also very simple and it doesn't need to have all of this randomness in it. And for me, like Christianity just never really hit because Jesus has to be the son of God. Yeah. And, Jesus is never the daughter of God. And uh, Yeah, and I'm like, okay, well then how does that fit into my perspective? Because my perspective is the Barbie movie. My perspective yeah. is Ken just exists, you know? <laughs> like, and it's not like I meant for Ken to just exist, but that is just, I am in my own body with my own brain. Yeah. And what does Jesus have to do with that? Thanks, Jesus, for making food and making fish come out of nowhere. Thanks a lot, dude. Whatever. Good for you. You did your little miracles. But, like, all the women in there, I was searching for that. I'm like, what, you know, where am I in this story? Mm -hmm. I knew I was recognized by what I perceived as God. And I, when I was in high school, I, like, if I was going to date anybody, they had to believe in God. Because what that means to me is that they believe in something beyond. That they think about things beyond. They have a perspective beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. And I realized it had nothing to do with Christianity. It had nothing to do with religion. It had to do with, are you somebody that respects things around you and acknowledges there is something more and and is capable of, of caring? Yeah. You know, and not just being self-consumed in high school so I don't know what age I really was my whole life but I've always been having this connection I love hearing you talk about how your connection with God and how God is everything and not defined by anything because that feels very validating for me because that's always how I perceived God I'm glad we could have a connection over this. Me too. Because nobody seems... Everybody has to have their definition of what God is. And it's like... That is so anthropocentric. And Mm -hmm. you are just dismissing everything that exists in this world. Right. Yeah, it's... It can be very simple. And in my experience, children have an inherent understanding of the spiritual and of God whether that meshes with what their greater society feels and teaches that can lead to either a confirmation of the child's inherent wondering and inherent amazement at the world and saying i feel a connection to something greater than myself or can rebuff that and say no 
you don't experience God the way I, an adult, experience God. Therefore, your experience is incorrect. So if we can give children the freedom to wonder and to say, I experience God in this way, and to say, that's wonderful. And that's, that's to me, that's art and and recreate that's like going out in nature or making music or not coloring a picture but drawing a picture from your yeah. mind and and putting things together just using your brain and being able to be a child in your own way my parents were really good about giving that to me and i think i think that's why i'm able to be so open-minded and why i had such a healthy god relationship my whole life and why I was always able to kind of have my own connection there was because I was allowed to experience things how I genuinely experienced them and my parents were never like no that's not the way mm-hmm. and that's like what creativity is mm-hmm. it's not when you go into a classroom and you tell the kid the right way to play an instrument yeah when you let them figure it out just do it yeah just play it just feel it <laughs> just feel it and that's what it that's what But what are we but feelings? But what are we but feelings, Jess? Truly. That was a beautiful chat. It was really wonderful. I knew we would have such a good chat. Yeah. Okay, guys, we're, we're going to sign off. Thank you for listening. Jess, do you want to plug yourself for anything? Nah. Jess is just a beautiful person. I'm just here. Thank so you for having fun. me on. So incredible. Thank you for being on and sharing your cat space with me and your coffee. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Goodbye, listeners. <laughs>